Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Are you familiar with your human vehicle? Welcome to episode number 51. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Michael Cremo. He's a world-renowned researcher and author of the classic book, Forbidden Archaeology. He's also the author of The Hidden History of the Human Race, as well as Human Deevolution, and he's toured the world doing seminars and expos. He's also been featured on such television shows as the classic Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. So it's a pleasure to sit down and pick this man's brain. (laughs) We're going to talk about the supernatural powers of people like Jesus and Buddha and Krishna. We're going to talk about the Great Pyramids of Egypt. How did they come about? We're going to talk about how old human beings really are. But most importantly, we're going to talk about the human vehicle. Mr. Cremo is a spiritual man of Eastern traditions, and that provides a brand new dynamic of science meeting spirituality, East meeting West. And he has many insights to provide. So let's dig in. I think I read somewhere that you came across the Gita at a rock concert. Is that true? Yes, that, that's true, absolutely. In uh, the early 1970s, I wow. had gone to a, a Grateful Dead concert in upstate New York. I think yeah. it was Rochester, you know, someplace like that. I had gotten a copy of Bhagavad Gita from, I guess, a, a member of the Hare Krishna movement at that time who had been right. traveling around with the Grateful the Grateful Dead to their you know different concerts. Where you were what in your early twenties? Yeah, I was in my early twenties at that time. I would have been about uh, twenty-three or twenty-four years old at 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 the time. Did you read it when you got home, or you read it right there? Uh, I began looking at it right when I was at the concert, and I already had a, an interest in Indian philosophy and things like that. Yeah. Because you know, I, I grew up in a military family. My father was an intelligence officer in the United States Air Force. So right. you know, that meant a few things for me as I was growing up. One thing is our family was living in different countries. And I met some European kids, you know, maybe I was 16 years old at that time. Yeah. And I met some European kids who had traveled to India and back. Over. So you were being exposed to Eastern cultures young. Yeah, got exposed to a lot of different. So, I, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. You know, they told me some stories about 
uh, going to the Himalayas and the Ganges River and meeting different yogis and yeah. mystics and things like that. So I became a little bit interested in that. And then, and then all of a sudden, the Bhagavad Gita, one of the most famous spiritual texts of all times, yeah, ends up in yeah. your hand at a Grateful Dead concert of all places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a funny well, story. What yeah. was it about the Gita that completely attracted you to Hinduism and Krishna? Well, I think what what really got to me was this idea that the real person, the real self, my real self is not the body. Mm. Uh, that was really fascinating to me the idea that there is a conscious self that can survive mm -hmm. you know the death of the physical body and continue to exist and have other lives in other words there's reincarnation right and the law of karma you know that there are reactions to what we do and what we think you know there are reactions that come to us individually and collectively you know these things were very intriguing to me and they yeah. seem to correspond really to reality as you know they added a, a, a real dimension to my understanding of myself and my place in in, in right. the universe. That's right. And Krishna himself is a fascinating character well, that, as well. That was another whole aspect to it, the concept of God that's revealed in the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic literatures was something different from anything I had ever encountered before uh, I was raised as a Roman Catholic and mm. and I I got a lot from that but there was this dimension of you know, because the you know the the picture of God that I had from that was right. kind of the God of Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel painting of a very old, powerful male figure with a gray beard and right. you know, kind of like Zeus overlooking things. And, yeah. Yeah. And in, in the Bhagavad Gita and beyond the Bhagavad Gita, other Vedic texts, the picture of God that was presented was really something quite different. Eternally youthful, playful, mm -hmm. engaged in all kinds of attractive activities. Uh, God that is not strictly a male figure, but has a female counterpart, uh, Radha, who is in her own right, also very intriguing and attractive. Right. And, you know, they, there's this whole dimension where 
love of God begins to have a, an entirely different different meaning. That's right. So that 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 attracted to me, and eventually I became a disciple of a guru from India, um, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and I began to I have one of his practice, books right here. Yeah, Bhakti <laughs> Yoga. Yeah, the the. Uh, yeah, science of self-realization. This book, funny book. story. This book right here was given to me also at a rock concert. Oh, what 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 band was? It it, it was, <laughs> was a, a festival. It, it was a festival with tons of bands, and and so I've had this book for about ten years now, and go figure, it's your guru. Yeah, you know, the philosophy and the whole outlook that was explained and. Yeah. In that book, of course, you know I don't claim to have a, a monopoly on truth, and I think that exclusive claims to truth are one of the big problems in right. in the world today. So the vision that was presented by my guru is that you know wherever, say, like you see gold, you know the element gold. You know, it, 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 you know, you may see it in a, a coin, and the coin may have symbols of different nations on it. Right. right. But if it's really gold, then it doesn't matter what you call it. You could call it Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or Hinduism or whatever. But if it's if it's uh, really gold, then it really doesn't matter, you know, what you call it. So I think love of God and true understanding of the self mm -hmm. can be found in many different. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So, uh, A wise man once told me there's many ways to get to 42nd Street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many human beings have been reported as to having mystical or supreme powers. Krishna being one of them, right? Krishna, even as a child, there's stories of him slaying beasts and demons. And one time he even parted a body of water with his foot. Um, of course, Jesus healing the sick, walking on water, yes. water in the wine. Gautama, the Buddha himself, has, it's, it was reported that he could fly or walk through walls. Um, St. Patrick, going the, you know, the Catholic side of things, was reported to melt snow with his staff and slay demons. And of course, Muhammad transported himself all the way from Mecca to Jerusalem. So there's yeah. these, these wild stories. And are they myth or are they parables? Or are these human beings that realize their true potential? Well, I think they're all dealing with reality as it is. And therefore, you see a lot of commonalities among the kinds of experiences and visions that they uh, display or report having encountered. Basically, you know, in, in my book, Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory, I 
look at phenomena like this. I have a cross-cultural study of cosmologies where I look at 30 or 40 different cosmologies and worldviews from different locations and times in human history. And as you were mentioning, you know, the, they report similar visions of reality. They display similar powers. And I, I attribute that to the fact that they're all dealing with the same basic reality. And that reality is that we're part of a whole cosmic hierarchy of beings. Life is not limited just to this earth. And life on earth has dimensions and aspects to it, you know, that uh, there are subtle powers that yeah. you say the mental body has beyond the limits of the gross physical body. You know, there are experiences that we can have that involve the ability to move things or perceive things that go beyond the limits of the gross physical body. As on, on that level of reality, everything is ruled by a principle, harmonious, loving cooperation among all beings of pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. If some conscious being becomes selfish, domineering, controlling, exploiting, then there is no place for them on that level of reality. There has to be another level of reality where they can act out those desires. And that other level of reality is where we find ourselves now, the material level of reality. And here we have a choice, all of us. We can decide to become either more involved in trying to compete with each other, dominate, control, exploit for our own selfish purposes, the material resources and other personalities, or we can take the path of light, you could say, that first path is the path of darkness. Right. The other is the path of light, trying to understand I'm a being of pure consciousness, you're a being of pure consciousness, we're all beings of pure consciousness, we all come from the same source, we're all related, let's yeah. don't divide ourselves up into different competing groups, let's satisfy our material needs in the most simple natural, fair, and efficient way right. possible. Right. And put most of our energy into developing that resource of consciousness. We're all part of the whole. This plane that we're living on, it's very layered. Like you, like you mentioned, it's very layered. And I wonder why scientists, modern science, doesn't pay as much attention to what we're talking about right now, the metaphysical side. Ultimately, I think that has something to do with some decisions that scientists made a 
a few centuries ago. Mm. Uh, even if you go back maybe 400 or 500, 600 years in Europe where Western science arose, the, uh, the worldview that they had at that time was very different from the worldview they have at the present moment. You know, they had a worldview that involved multiple levels of reality. They had a worldview that involved different kinds of subtle energies and powers and persons that aren't part of the scientific worldview today. Right. And that's because at a certain point, uh, they decided, uh, well, let's just focus our scientific work on matter, ordinary matter, physical matter, not the different subtle and vital energies and things like that, but the, what we can actually uh, observe and control and let's study ordinary matter and how it can operate according to mathematically describable equations that enable us to uh, predict and control what will happen. Right. And that was very effective. By that method, scientists were able to advance in their understanding and ability to control ordinary matter. And as a result of that, they were able to develop technologies which governments like very much, which corporations like very much, mm. and which we, people, like very much as well. They were able to develop weapons, new weapons, for right. example, which governments and militaries like. They were able to come up with uh, pharmaceuticals, medicines that corporations like. They were able to come up with all kinds of products that we, the ordinary people, like. Right. So it was very effective in, in that sense, but there was a cost to it. And the cost was they didn't have a complete picture of reality uh, mm. by this focusing on ordinary matter. Yeah, we got a lot of technological advancement and progress, but it was at the expense of not understanding who we really are That's right. and where we are. They didn't have a complete picture of reality. They ruled out uh, the existence, the idea that there's any higher power in the universe that has something to do with our presence here. They ruled out the idea that there's a conscious self that can exist apart from matter. Right. And they began to tell us, well, we're all just machines made of molecules. Right, right. And so, and because of these mistaken ideas, you know, we find we've developed a civilization that's destroying the environment, that is engaged in violence and competition on all levels of human society, among there's conflict among individuals, classes, races, nations, uh, 
yeah, there's, so we're missing something. Uh, I mean, this focus on matter has resulted in a, a lot of progress in one sense, but there's a lot of problems that it's created as well. Absolutely. So I think uh, a new science which recognize, okay, yes, matter is part of the picture, but beyond that, there is there are different subtle energies, and there's consciousness, which is not produced by matter. It has its own independent existence. It's formless. If we had a science that took that into account, we'd be in a lot better place. Yeah. The formed versus the formless. Do you think this is why many modern scientists are atheists? Yes. And I'm not really surprised by that. But as far as I'm concerned, if, if someone, by the exercise of their own personal intelligence, comes to that conclusion, that's fine. But... I don't, where I disagree is when people try to take their own personal conclusion and impose it on others right. by especially using the government, you know, through its control of the education system, you know, to mm. enforce their personal views, whatever they have to be on others. Right. Right. Yeah, so that's that's where I see you you get get into into problems. So about twenty years after you came across the Bhagavad Gita at a Grateful Dead concert, you wrote a book called Forbidden Archaeology that became a classic. This book rubbed a lot of science people the wrong way, didn't it? Well, yes, and <laughs> it deals with the question of human origins and mm -hmm. antiquity. Now, as far as modern science is concerned, human beings like us first appeared on this planet between 200,000 and 300,000 years ago. And before that, they would say, well, there, there were no humans like us existing on this planet or anywhere else in the universe. There were only more on this planet, more primitive ape-like human beings, not humans, human ancestors. And then apes and monkeys, you go back a little further than that, some primitive small mammals before that only dinosaurs and reptiles, and before that, only amphibians, and before that, only fish, and before that, nothing. Mm. Uh, just material elements on this planet. Mm. And that's their picture, that we're accidental beings that have arisen in an accidental universe. But from the Vedic literature of India, from the Bhagavad Gita and the Puranas, the historical and cosmological writings of ancient India, and the knowledge that comes down to us from many other wisdom traditions, ancient wisdom traditions. 
right. they they kind of tell us a different story, namely that human beings have been around since the very beginning of the history of life on Earth. And to me, that's pretty rational. You know, the, the universe is actually a, a very complicated place. Hmm. And you know, say if we have some scientists on Earth, they put up a space station. Okay, the space station is up there, but they're not putting it up there, kind of hoping that the chemicals and the space station will combine together, form some first living thing that will gradually evolve into astronauts that will then inhabit the space station. No, they put the space station up because they've got astronauts that they want to put in it and right from the beginning. So our universe is not an accident, in in my opinion. It it has a purpose. It's like a school for themselves to understand who they are. And that understanding comes in the human form of life. The human vehicle is a very special vehicle. So I think it's always been around. Yeah. And it there's some archaeological evidence for that. Uh, that's what the book Forbidden Archaeology is all about. Hmm. So there's many artifacts that are just swept to the side and hidden from us. Yeah. This idea of extreme human antiquity is one of the things that I encountered in the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic literatures. And it was something that was completely different from anything I'd ever heard from my teachers in high school or in college. So I, I, yeah, I was thinking about it. You know, is there any evidence for, that humans like us existed for millions and millions and millions of years, or is this just simply some mythological aspect of of these ancient wisdom traditions, like the Vedic wisdom tradition? And so that that's what got me looking into the history of archaeology. Of course, if you look in the current textbooks of archaeology, you're only going to see the discoveries that support the dominant idea scientists have today, which is human beings have only been around a short period of time, really. Mm -hmm. So, but I decided, okay, I'm not just going to look at today's textbooks. I'm going to go back to the original scientific reports. And when I did that, I found many reports of scientists finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back millions and millions of years in some cases. And I began to ask myself, well, why, if these reports, if these discoveries are there in the original scientific reports by archaeologists, geologists, paleontologists, Mm. why aren't they in the textbooks today? And I think it's because of the process of knowledge filtration that goes on in science. The things that fit the current paradigm, you'll hear about them. 
Right. Things that don't fit, they get filtered out. There's some social engineering going on there. And it's, in one sense, it's... it's cherry picking. It, it is. And, and, and in one sense, it's just human nature. Right. You know, like if I love somebody and then somebody tells me something bad about the person I love, then, you know, I may not want to hear it. You know, I may even become a little angry at the person who mm -hmm. says such things. So kind of like in a similar way, today's scientists are very much in love with their current theories. And right. If you well said some evidence that contradicts it, then it, it's kind of a natural response. Sure, you know, sure. In your research, how on point are the Sumerian tablets? Some of it's just accounting and stuff like that, and you know, kind of stuff. But there, there's also uh, Sumerian tablets, texts that deal with cosmological issues, the uh, origin of life and the universe and things like that. As I said, among these different ancient wisdom traditions, there are a lot of commonalities. There are also some differences, you know, because people are looking at things from their particular perspectives. It's like if you have a mountain, you know, somebody looking at it from the east will perceive it in a certain way. Somebody looking at the same mountain from the north will perceive it in a slightly different sure. way. Yeah. But it's kind of obvious that they're dealing with the same thing. So a lot of these different ancient wisdom traditions, whether we're talking about the Sumerian or the Vedic or the Greek or the Roman or Pacific Islander perspectives or Native American Indian perspectives. Right. Yeah. They have some commonalities. And one of the commonalities is it's a multi-level cosmos that we inhabit. And there are different types of beings at, you know, the different levels. Mm. And some of the beings that are involved in the creation or the manifestation of these different levels. And, you know, there are interactions between humans on this level and these other beings that exist at other different levels. So uh, it's they, the vision that they present goes far beyond the idea that life is confined to this one planet that we now inhabit. Right. So, in, in, in the Sumerian text, you find that, that idea. Uh, but it's also found in many other wisdom traditions as sure. well. So could it be accurate that we were engineered by a, a higher species, an alien species, if you will, and we're, yeah. like, we're, we're an experiment, basically? Well, I wouldn't put it exactly in... A hybrid? In those, in those terms. Uh, of course, one thing is that I have an expanded definition of what it means to be 
an extraterrestrial or an alien. <clears throat> and this depends on understanding that the human body or any other type of body, an animal body, a plant body, an insect body, whatever type of body it is, it's a vehicle for a conscious self that has its origin on some higher level of reality. Right. So uh, I would say in that sense, as beings of pure consciousness, we're all aliens, we're all extraterrestrials. As beings of pure consciousness, we're all here to have okay. an experience in this school. Not just us, but a, a, a tree yeah. or, a dog, or a dog. Yeah. Uh, and we're having these experiences in these vehicles that we call bodies. And the human vehicle is a very special one. But they're all special in the sense that they're meant to give the conscious self different kinds of experiences and opportunities to act in particular particular ways. So these vehicles, where do they come from? They are designed. They, they, they didn't just come about by chance. They're designed in order to give us different kinds of experiences and lessons in this, as you say, school you know, that we call the universe. For example, as a, as a human being, I'm meant to walk around on the land. Right. If I enter an alien element like water and I want to remain there, I can only do that if I have a vehicle a boat. Like a submarine yeah. or a diving suit that will mm -hmm. allow me to function underneath the water. Mm -hmm. So where does that come from? It comes from an engineer who understands the human being's going to live under the water. It needs such a vehicle. Well so they design it, they make it, we use it. So similarly, as a being of pure consciousness, if I come into the world of matter... I need a vehicle made of matter that will allow me to function in the world of matter. So, so could, could it be that the Anunnaki created this vehicle called the human body? Yes. And you could, in the Sumerian texts, they're called Anunnaki. And other texts, they may be called angels or jinn or devas or whatever. But yes, there are higher beings with higher intelligence who are responsible for producing the vehicles that we operate in on this level of reality. And the human vehicle is a very special one because in the human vehicle, in the human form of life, we have the intelligence to understand these things, to understand that we're not produced, we're not originally from this level of reality. 
we're from a higher level of reality and the real purpose of human life is to return to that higher level of reality that I call the level of pure consciousness. You know, other people may have a different term for it, nirvana, or you know, there, there are different terminologies right. for, for these things. But you, ju you just said something that's very, in my mind, important. You said there's different names, and that's consistent in all cultures that it, based on my research and studies, one of the names that you just brought up is the devas. So the devas, it's a very common term, term in Hinduism and Buddhism. And Gautama the Buddha talked about the devas, he talked about communicating with them, especially at the end of his life. So you're saying devas correlates with in other cultures, angels, maybe even Anunnaki, maybe ascended masters could be another term, do you think? That's, that's another term. Basically, I would see it like this, that originally on the level of pure consciousness, which is beyond the level of matter, there are unlimited numbers of beings of pure consciousness, and they're all coming, emanating from the same source, like sparks that are coming with the fire. If some of the sparks drift away from the fire, you know, they kind of lose their fiery quality, you could mm -hmm. say. And we're kind of in that position now, where we've been as beings of pure consciousness, we've been covered over a little bit with subtle material energies like mind and intelligence and ego and gross material elements. Uh, so the beings that are maybe covered with subtle material energies like mind and intelligence, the devas and other such beings are on that level. Mm. But some conscious selves, they also, in addition to the coverings of these subtle material elements, have coverings of the grosser physical elements as well, like this human body or the body of a fish or an insect or an animal of some, some kind. Mm. So the devas are on this intermediate level where they have simply coverings of the more subtle material energies. And they are able to control and manipulate the gross physical elements on this level of reality and produce you know, different kinds of gross physical bodies that you know, we have. And they operate on a, a, a different level. And that level may involve all kinds of phenomena that we, we, we would consider to be paranormal. Right. Or, supernatural mm -hmm. things like that 
Yeah. Now, speaking of that, is that how the Great Pyramids were built in Egypt? Yeah, well, I think some peoples at different times and different places were more in touch with these subtle energies and they could use them to manipulate ordinary matter in ways that we just can't imagine today. Mm-hmm. In other words, say if we want to make an airplane, a jet airplane, well, today the way we do it is we mine minerals, we refine them in factories, turn them into metals like you know, titanium and aluminum, and, and then we bring you know the different elements together in another factory. You know, you have your supply chain, you bring them all together, you have your engineers and things like that, and you you manufacture an airplane by this very complicated process. In the Vedic literature, you know, we find that there are descriptions of yogis with mystic powers who would manifest vimanas, aircraft or spacecraft, simply by their manipulation of you know, the, using their different subtle energies to put these things together. And that doesn't in, involve mining and manufacturing and things like that. Right. So these, some of these uh, structures that we find a little difficult to explain yeah. how exactly they were done according to ordinary physics and our understanding of how things are done. I believe, yes, they may have been done by beings who were in touch with these more subtle levels and they had an understanding of how they, using these different subtle energies and forces, they were able to manipulate ordinary matter in ways that right. you really can't imagine or yeah. accomplish today. Yes. And not to mention they're brilliantly lined up with the with the sky, with the stars, astrologically. Yeah. What about India? What is it about India that is so mystical? I mean, this place is just I've never been there. You've been there Right? How many times have you been there? Um, dozens of times. The the colors, the music, the people. You know, I had studied other kinds of mystic spiritual traditions. You know, you can look into ancient Egyptian spirituality and cosmology and things like that. You can read the, uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. You can mm. read the hieroglyphics. You know, there are all, all different kinds of information presented in the Egyptian text. But you know, if you look 
today. You know, if you go to the pyramids or the temples in ancient Egypt, generally speaking, you're not going to see the Egyptian priest or personalities who were part of that culture still functioning today. You know, same thing if you go to the Parthenon in Athens. You know, I mean, the ancient Greeks, they had all kinds of understandings about uh, the universe, but you, you're, you don't see that ancient Greek culture functioning today in right. Parthenon. Same with a lot of the other ancient wisdom traditions, the Sumerian, for example. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can still visit you know, the, the different Sumerian sites, and you can see the artifacts in the museums, but there's not a living Sumerian culture existing today. What I really found fascinating about India is that, yes, the Vedic texts are there. They describe this uh, ancient culture and its understandings. But what's fascinating to me about India is that today there are still remnants of that culture that are still existing. You can go to the different Vedic temples in India and they're still functioning in the same way that they were thousands or even millions of years ago. Mm. So, you know, that's one thing that I found very, very uh, fascinating about right. uh, India. Of course, on, on one level, you know, they were, their culture was affected in some ways, you know, by the fact that, you know, the European countries like England and others kind of took over and right. imposed kind of like a, a layer of, uh, Western yeah. organization and understanding on right. that culture, but uh, basically the culture kind of continued on despite that. So, well, I, I hope it keeps going because every it seems like the whole world is becoming Westernized a little at a time. But you know, India not only does it have all these ancient places and artifacts but so many gurus and yogis and sages have come from this one area i mean it's 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 like a, a phenomenon yeah well my guru used to say yeah that you could the best thing would be to combine the best of the west and best of the, east. the east yeah the East produces the gurus and the sages, and the West produces the scientists. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in ancient times, you know, if we go back in history, there was a time when uh, India had the proper vision, and they also had a, a society organized according to those principles. Yeah, but... Uh, now the vision may still be there, but the organizational and functional aspect uh, is uh, probably more developed 
in the West, although right. the West or the, the modern developed world, because you know, it extends beyond mm -hmm. what we call the West classically, but to say the developed world, scientific world, it has a lot of functionality, but because it lacks the proper vision, you get so many problems, wars, right. economic right. disasters, uh, conflict, environmental destruction, and so many things. Yeah. Now, you have a guru, and so you understand the guru-disciple relationship. Why do you think that relationship is so misunderstood in the Western side of the world? Well... <clears throat> How many times are, is it said, oh, that's a cult? Right? You hear the word cult thrown around like it's nothing. You know, it's like if you get down and you touch the feet of another man, it, it means something in India, but it just looks like you're in a cult in New York, right? If it happens in New York. But then again, here in the West, we go crazy over celebrities, right? Dwayne the Rock Johnson walks in and people shake and they faint. <laughs> so it's an interesting dynamic between the East and the West, wouldn't you say? Well, in, in the West, when people have a problem, they want an expert mm -hmm. that will present factual situation, the factual situation to them. And on that basis, they think, then we can act in a proper way. And in order for us to learn what to do in the face of this problem, we need some advice from experts. Right. So who are the experts? Many times you know, we come to situations where our own resources don't allow us to come to some conclusion or way of understanding. And then at that point, we want to go to an expert. So that's what a guru is, is an that's expert right. in understanding the fundamental problems of human existence right i just i it's a topic that i bring up on this podcast off often because i want people to understand it it doesn't always have to be you know jesus muhammad or moses there's other avenues to find your true self yeah and the vedic tradition it's recommended that the disciple test a prospective guru right. for a year at least before agreeing to accept that person as a teacher. Right. And in the same way, the guru is advised to test the disciple for a year. And in, in other words, to have 
a genuine guru-disciple relationship. And in Christianity, that's originally how it started. Mm. Jesus was the teacher. He had his disciples. Mm. It, it's expressed in exactly those terms. Right. And why did his disciples accept him? Because they heard what he had to say. They could see it. They could see he was living according to what he was saying. And when they were following his, his instructions, they could actually physically observe that they were improving. They were getting you know, some real advancement spiritually from right. their connection. So uh, the same thing today. Yeah. Sure. You know, it, there are many people who may be teachers or posing themselves as teachers, but then you have to look. What is it? You know, you have to test them. So makes sense. So, Michael, your, I mean, your books are full of just a wealth of knowledge, so much research. What's the one discovery that you made in your career that just blew the top off your head? I mean, it just blew your mind, man. Well, the most amazing thing for me is that there are hundreds of cases where scientists that found evidence for extreme human antiquity. To me, that's the most amazing thing. Mm. But among those hundreds of cases, I do have my favorites. And my, my favorite is the California gold mine discoveries. Mm. And you know, in the 19th century, gold was discovered in California. So miners came from around the world to get the gold. And they were digging tunnels into sides of mountains like Table Mountain in the Sierra Nevada mountains near the town of Sonora. And deep inside these tunnels, the miners were finding human artifacts like obsidian spear points, stone mortars, and pestles. And, and they were also finding human skeletal remains. And these discoveries came to the attention of Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. And he published a report about them. The report was published by Harvard University in the year 1880. But you know, we don't hear about these things today because of the process of knowledge filtration that operates in the scientific world. So there was a, another scientist, a contemporary of Whitney's, Dr. William Holmes, who was an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. And he said, well, if, if Dr. Whitney had understood the theory of human evolution, you know, the Darwinian theory, he wouldn't have announced those discoveries. And because, you know, that he thought they were millions of years old, 
and they were, the discoveries were made of layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million year, years old. Hmm. So Holmes was saying that can't possibly be true because it contradicts the, the now dominant theory of evolution. But, and because of that, these discoveries are not very well known today, but some of the artifacts from the California gold mines are still in the collection of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley. So once I got permission from the directors of that museum to study and photograph those artifacts. So that was a, a, an amazing experience to hold in my hands these artifacts that were made by humans who lived over 50 million years ago. Wow. And that was pretty amazing. And then I went into the Sierra Nevada mountains. I went to Table Mountain and I was able to relocate some of the old 19th century gold mining tunnels where these objects were discovered. So that was also a pretty amazing mm. experience. So that's one example of a, an astonishing yeah. discovery. That how, long, how long does it take you to put together a book? Well, the, the book Forbidden Archaeology took about eight years of wow. research and, and, and writing. But, you know, I wanted it to have some impact. And, and for that to happen, I knew it had to be very carefully researched. I mean, we know books are usually a word of mouth type of thing. Although it was offered to mainstream publishers, it was actually published by a small company originally called Torchlight Publishing. Okay. okay. Uh, that is operated by someone who's connected with the same spiritual master or guru that. Okay. Myself and my co-author Richard Thompson were connected with, so it, it, it uh, although the book was offered to mainstream publishers, they didn't take it. Right. So it was published by a small independent publisher, and uh, somehow or other, it caught on. Mm. And it, not just in America, but actually all around the world, you know, the book was picked up by publishers, and it's you know, it was translated into twenty six different languages. Wow! And then there you have it; it becomes a classic, just like that. Yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, that happens. You know. Uh, an idea uh, kind of circulates underground and then it, it you know, kind of comes from the bottom up. Forbidden archaeology needed to happen. 
And so it did. Many years later, you ended up on a very popular television show called Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. Now that show is it's on Netflix, it's on Amazon. I mean, it's like f- forever embedded in our modern entertainment cycle now. Looking back on that, do you think that the Ancient Alien series holds up the way it was produced? Because when you sit down for an interview, you don't see the final product. You just know what you said in front of the camera. Well, yeah, Ancient Aliens is an interesting phenomenon. You know, in 1993, when Forbidden Archaeology came out, the mainstream media wasn't we we did get a, a a special on NBC. It was called the Mysterious Origins of Man. It was hosted by Charlton Heston. Hmm. So, but there was a uh, a big negative reaction from the scientific world hmm. you know, when 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 that came out. Did they throw the pseudo word on you? That's what they do. They yeah, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. So, but but since, but after that, mainstream media sort of stayed away, you know, from from uh, these topics. But I would say the Ancient Aliens series was um, pretty revolutionary in the sense that you know, a mainstream channel was. Yeah, taking this up in a history channel. Yeah, and uh, I was involved in the initial pilot that was aired, and I was in some episodes in the first uh, few years of 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 the series. Mm-hmm. But yeah, kind of how that works is. You're interviewed. You may be interviewed for an hour or two, but they take out 30 seconds or two minutes of what you said and put it on. Yeah. So I think at a certain point, you know, they, yeah, you know, I haven't been in any of the recent. Episodes right. of it, right? You're there for the and, beginning. Yeah, you know, I think there's a a reason for that because behind the scenes, I was always trying to uh, get get them to understand my expanded version of what an extraterrestrial or an alien right. is. Right, and. <clears throat> Uh, what you explained on this podcast just right right yeah that we're beings of pure consciousness all right you were bringing the spiritual aspect you that's what makes you very interesting to me is that you're bringing the spiritual aspect and the material archaeological aspect and it, it it provides a more dynamic and complete perspective yeah you. so even among what you might call the alternative archaeology and history 
researchers, I'm kind of an anomaly even <laughs> among them. Right, right, right. You know, so it's you stand kind out. Of an interesting situation to be in. <laughs> Yeah, the, you just never know what you're going to get in the mainstream. And that's the beauty of this new podcasting thing that we have, this new phenomenon where you can talk, you know, in long form like we're doing right now. And you have a podcast coming out soon as well. That's going to be very interesting, certainly. You know, you, you get the good stuff is the long terms, not a 20-second clip on Ancient Aliens. Yeah, that that will be coming out hopefully sooner than later uh, it, it will be called the forbidden archaeologist yeah and you know so that will be you know coming out you know people can stay in in touch with you know my website mcremo.com the interviews link it'll when the when that's ready when it's uh coming out there'll be notification of it mm, i feel like we could keep talking for hours and hours there's so much more that i would love to pick your brain on but i do have to wrap this up but you know you're in your you're in your early 70s now correct yes how has your spiritual practice helped you with the transition of getting older and closer to leaving your body? Well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because the essence of the spiritual path that I follow is that the self, the actual conscious self, is different than, you know, the physical body. The physical body is uh, an instrument that, the conscious self is 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 using so it is kind of an experience to uh, understand okay this vehicle that I'm presently using to try to accomplish my purposes is well it it, it it's maybe not functioning quite as well as it was 30 or 40 years ago. Sure. But, it's ripening. You know, it, as long as it is functioning, I'll continue to use it yeah. to hopefully benefit myself and others in, 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 in some way. If, if I didn't think that I was benefiting myself and others by doing this, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing it. So right, right. where it will lead, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I'm going to be continuing my existence beyond this gross physical body. Right. And even now, you know, you, I, I find myself with the sense of being in this world, yes. <laughs> but not of this world. I get it. That's kind of the realization that I 
get as as a conscious self within the vehicle of a material body. Right. Well said. Mr. Cremo, it's been an absolute pleasure. I wish we had three more hours. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get a chance to talk again. I hope that would be great. That would be great. Okay, Kevin. Take care of yourself. So there you have it. Michael Cremo, world-renowned researcher and author. I think we got a lot out of that. And certainly, it matches with the last episode, the Row Your Boat episode, episode 50. Right? I provided a discourse on the boat being your body, and you have to row the boat. The row is the action, so who rows the boat? I was talking about your soul or your true self. Michael Cremo was using the term pure consciousness. And instead of vessel or body, he used the term quite a few times, the human vehicle. <laughs> so it's just a beautiful thing how this all comes together. And sometimes there's different terms used from different traditions, but it's all the same concept because truth is the truth. And when the dots connect for you, it becomes a very beautiful existence. <laughs> Be sure to keep your eye out for my new meditation album. Uh, it's available on drreese.com. That's doctor spelled out. And it'll be up on Spotify and Apple hopefully soon. So you keep your eye out for that. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.